He won Journalist of the Year from the American Conservative Union at CPAC 2015. You like me right now. You like me. He's Jim Garrity. How do you like me now? Now that I'm on my She's a broadcast professional who's got pop culture by the throat, and she won't let go. Crank up the radio. Run for your lives, everyone. This is not a drill. She's broadcast pro Mickey White. How do you like me now? This is the Jim and Mickey Show. Welcome to the Jim and Mickey Show, brought to you by Nihilist Arby's. Nihilist Arby's. It's 3 a.m. You awake in a panic. Are you wasting your life? Are you alone? Relax. There's Arby's. You're totally insignificant, and you'll die soon. So don't worry about your weight. Soon you'll be crushed by the weight and cruelty of an indifferent universe. You'll never be this young again. Where is your God now, Subway? Your first mistake was believing in anything. Life is meaningless. Eat Arby's. Die quickly. Escape to blackness. Man, I think I just read the worst book in the world. Jim Garrity, joined by Mickey White and Dave Perkins. Welcome to the Jim and Mickey Show. So with an intro like that, Mickey, are you psyched for the Oscars this weekend? Well, um, in addition to now having a craving for Arby's, um, you know, I always look forward to, and our listeners know this, the red carpet as much as the event of the Oscars. However, this year it should be really interesting with all the drama building up to it. Um, and, of course, we've got Chris Rock hosting it. And considering, you know, Oscar So White seems to be on the tip of everyone's tongue, or at least it was like two weeks ago. You know, it's America. We really have the attention span of gnats. Um, but I think that there's going to be a lot of talk about it one way or the other. When the nominations for the Oscars were announced, you and I had kind of chewed them over. And uh, I think we came to the conclusion that there's a contradiction at the heart of the Oscars that they want to be a representation of the elite, right? This is who the movie makers, this is who the Academy thinks are the the best performers, the best directors, the best pictures of the year. And yet they want a big audience. So they simultaneously want to represent, they want as many people as possible to be interested in something that fundamentally represents the views of only a small number of people. Um, It's exacerbated this year by Oscars So White, and I I find myself actually intrigued, Mickey, but only for about the first, let's say, 20 minutes of the show. You want to see the monologue? Yeah, I I actually find myself curious as to how Chris Rock is going to handle this, um, because I've come to the conclusion there are two really good directions he can go in, and my suspicion is he'll do neither of those. All right, so what do you think are his two best options, and of course he will do neither of them. Yeah, okay, so option one would be, look... There were 20 nominees in the acting categories this year. All of them were white. Um, none of the director nominees were, you know, were, were, were African-American. African-Americans feel like they have been slighted and ignored and passed over and snubbed year after year. Uh, he could take it head on. And a lot of people think, look, he's Chris Rock. He's going to have to, you know, he's going to talk about it at some point. Um, and it'd be kind of, it would be really bold if he came out and said, you know what? Uh, this is a city and an industry that likes to think of it itself as being progressive and open-minded and uh, noble and, and understanding and diverse, and they're all a bunch of hypocrites. They're as bad as anybody, and it's time for them to stop patting themselves on the back about this. That's true. Right? If he did that, right. like, how many people at home would say, yeah, you know, and re- you know, is he, in other words, is he willing to alienate the room? Is he willing to 
say things that people Have in that order. Have you ever watched his stand up? Right. <laughs> He's got this reputation as this truth teller, right? Well, as this, it, well, no, not necessarily a truth teller. In my opinion, he is more of a. I mean, Chris Rock. He has. He tells his own truth. Let's put it that way. He acknowledges would, truth. He, he really acknowledges does. truth. How not he to get your ass kicked by the police is one of the most epic comedy videos I've ever seen. Yes, <laughs> that that's pretty good. Um, he, he does. He has always touched on racial issues in a way that was both funny mm-hmm. and also educational to a certain degree, kind of enlightening to some people. Provocative. Yes, provocative, makes you think. Um, He's the only guy I know that can make people laugh and make them uncomfortable at the same time. Yeah, you know, he's kind of got that going for him. Um, One of the things I I think is going to be interesting is because, you know, I I love Chris Rock's comedy to a certain degree. I think he's as big of a hypocrite as, you know, all of the other ones are, if I'm being completely frank. Um, He doesn't do a lot of black films anymore. He's primarily in what would be considered, you know, white marketed films. So there's that. He's never probably going to win an Oscar till he's like 70 for playing some random role. Um, and so what I suspect is going to happen um, is that he's just going to come out and pretty much every other joke is going to be about white people and Hollywood. Yeah. And well, and the thing is, I sincerely hope they've got that five second delay or seven second mm-hmm. delay rolling. Okay. See, my second option for the direction he could have gone in would be to to look at you know to name the five best actor nominees, to name the name the five best actress nominees, and say, okay, all right, you know, Oscars so white, who didn't deserve their nomination? Who do we kick off so that Will Smith can get his third? Right? Well, yeah, I mean, that's really what uh, Oscar So yeah. White is literally a campaign for Will Smith, which if they had marketed it correctly, they probably wouldn't be having this problem. In other words, he could he could turn the tables on Oscars So White and those complaining and say, hey, wait a minute. You know, you're effectively arguing for set asides. You're effectively arguing, you know. What who, you're, you're basically insulting some of the people who are supposed to have one of the best moments of their lives, getting their Oscar nomination, and you're ruining it by suggesting that it's racism instead of based on merit. Guaranteed. Well, and more importantly, what does that do to future nominations when a black person yep. does get nominated? Exactly. And it, it doesn't mean lower anything standard. because obviously it was just, you know, what? Yeah. You know, this is why these kind of arguments are such crap, but I do think that it's funny that it was all started by Jada Pinkett Smith and Will Smith because of, of Will not being nominated for Concussion, which is an extremely controversial film that a lot of people didn't like, and it just tanked mm-hmm. um, um, at the box office. Now, I want, I want to say something here because I want to tie this together because I just recently watched some previous Oscar nominees, show, like movies I hadn't seen before, but I'd heard good things. Um, so I thought, you know, oh, they're finally on HBO. I think it was, you know, whatever on demand. And I was like, all right, I'll watch this. And I watched the Birdman yeah. movie from last year. Mm-hmm. And I watched the Foxcatcher movie, which I think was from last year or the year before. Mm-hmm. I would like to suggest that neither of these films were any good. Hmm. Murmurs of controversy in the background you can hear here. Well, the thing about it was that I read people's reviews, and they said these were good movies. Those people are liars. (laughs) 
I mean, honest to God, I, I after watching Foxcatcher, my response was, and, and, you know, everyone says, you know, those are two and a half hours of my life I'll never get back. I really felt that. Mm. Nothing happened in that movie. <laughs> and the and the other part, and again, when I watched Birdman, all I could think of was, of course, Hollywood loves this movie. It's about Hollywood. And it's absolute crap. I have no idea whether it was supposed to be, like, real or fantasy or whatever. And so, you know, these are the kind of movies that the Academy likes to put up. Kind of that artistic, edgy, we're a little too good for the commoners (laughs) type of movie. Notice the common thread there, by the way, Mickey, is two... Uh, comedic actors, Steve Carell and uh, at one point Michael Keaton, very much known better for his comedies pre-Batman, both taking a dramatic turn. Well, hence the, you know, Chris Rock will eventually get his Oscar when yes. he does something dramatic. At, you know, In 40 years, Chris Rock will be Morgan Freeman. He will be the guy who you call for narration of the car commercial. Honestly, I, I'm at the point now, like, I, I was, I'm pleased that Chris Rock decided to continue to host the Oscars. But that was one of the things that made me giggle was the fact that, you know, the host is black. So there's that. Like, yeah, my my sneaking. I mentioned, you know, the two the two directions he could go in. And Mickey, you put your finger on the middle course. My, I have a nagging feeling he will go down, which I think is the wrong one. If it turns into, oh, white people or oh, white America. Look. It's not the white shoe salesman in Des Moines who picked the Academy Award nomination. That's right. This year, right? <laughs> it's not, you know. Amen, uh, brother. It's, it's not, you know, Irving Schmidlap of New Hampshire <laughs> who, who chooses who gets to star in what movies, right? I mean, if, if black actors, directors, and writers feel like Hollywood is not giving them their fair shake, then the blame belongs on the people who run Hollywood. Not on this generic, you know, white America. My, my sneering joke, it, this, this I, nagging feeling it's going to turn into, this is a culture problem. No, no, it's a Hollywood cultural problem. It's a Hollywood problem. The last and place anyone would expect to find that problem, given Hollywood has been lecturing us about this for 60 years. Correct. Um, but, you know, I mean, the reality of the situation is there are some great black films out there, but most of them are comedies. Um and a lot of the black films that are made are, you know, if you get into a Spike Lee situation, sometimes you feel like you're getting preached at when you go. Mm-hmm. Um, there are very few, if any, stories about modern day inspirational black people. Um, I, the first one I can think of is The Secret of Happiness. Um, it wasn't that. Yes. Yeah. That's a good but, point. You're right. That actually, if, if we're going to do, they're they're more comfortable with historical ones. Selma, right. like everything um, is a period piece, and it's like I'm over that. The help, um, yeah, that's an interesting point. The idea that if it's if it's through the historic, uh, um, twelve years a slave. Those are always released com- in election seasons, too. By the way, mm. it's got a, it's got a it's, political rhythm to it. Uh, oh well, I mean, my God, you know that. That's one of the problems with some of the black directors and writers in Hollywood is that they are writing for an audience of one themselves. And so, you know, those movies don't do so well because here, surprise, surprise, I'm going to I'm going to share a secret with our listeners and with the world right now. Mm -hmm. Artists who are truly successful 
cross all cultural barriers. And you don't need to have, quote, identity entertainment. Okay, by the way, you're going to have a lot of, you know, all angry emails should be directed to Mickey White, care of. Um, because I think, I think there's a lot of people who, are, who we, people think of as being great artists, great performers, great um, writers, actors who, who don't achieve crossover appeal. Right. And, and part of it but is... But you don't get rich if you don't do that. And the important part for these people is that they're rich. Okay. I, I, I think you look at... For everyone who's ever loved a cult hit or a niche hit or something like that, um, when, when there's a failure of crossover appeal, they put that more on the audience than on the performer himself. Or they herself. do. We're too retarded uh, in a social sense, not in an insulting sense. We're too socially <laughs> backward to understand how high a level the entertainment is that's being directed at us. And so we're idiots, and that's, that's everyone's excuse for failing in entertainment. Yes, we're not smart enough to understand what yep. they're putting out. But one of my favorite lines from Chris Rock's uh, stand-up from several years ago was, you know, I'm rich, I've got millions of dollars, people know me, I've got my own TV show, and not one of you white people would trade places with me. That's <laughs> I, not true. I don't think let, it's true either. <laughs> let, let, me, let me correct the record. I'm totally down. I, I've always wanted to be black anyway. So I really have, like, no problem with it whatsoever. I'd become I a black totally woman to live the life of Chris Rock. <laughs> I've never wanted to be a dude, um, but I've always kind of, you know, felt that I, I was part of the black community in some way. Um, so, it's you know, extraordinarily I have, revealing that, that Chris Rock thinks the average white homeless man would want to switch places, would not want to switch places with him. Isn't yeah. it? Isn't it? Right? Yeah, I, mean, that, that, I mean, there's I some psychosis at work I think it speaks volumes, and I also think that it speaks volumes to understand that, like, he's been in the last several Adam Sandler movies. Um, so you don't get much more white bread than that. <laughs> and uh, coming up in the next segment, <laughs> we're going <clears> to <throat> – let me cut this for a sec. No problem, <laughs> Mickey. I'll just edit all this out. <laughs> you can count on me. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't edit it out last time. <laughs> finish, right. finish this segment. All right, let me get this in. All right, coming up in the next segment, we're going to be talking about um, some of the true crime shows that are really starting to make me think, um, and certainly should make you think as well, about how you're letting people into your home, whether you realize it or not. I'm Mickey White. He's Jim Garrity. And we'll be right back. What you're about to witness is one of the most sinister-sounding intros to a trailer to one of the greatest epics ever produced in the history of television. We now return to our regularly scheduled program. Now, back to the Jim and Mickey Show. Welcome back to the Jim and Mickey Show. I am Mickey White, along with Jim Garrity. And, of course, we've got Big Dave Perkins Uh behind the board. And uh, we were just getting into talking about, you know, For those of you who listen, you know I'm a true crime junkie. There is nothing that I enjoy more in the world than, unfortunately, murder and death and seeing people getting caught and the forensics behind it, etc. There's a new show on my favorite channel, Discovery ID, called Evil Lives Here. And it very well may be rising to the top of, like, my top five shows of all time. 
And the reason mm. is, just a, a little explanation for the listeners who have not seen it yet or are not familiar with it, is that it actually takes the approach of looking at a crime from the perspective of the family of the person who committed the heinous act. It's just the very first episode was on a mass shooter and watching his parents and his stepmom talk about it was just wrenching. Mm. I was going to say, Mickey, when you, at the moment you, you mentioned this as a possible show topic, I said, first of all, that is one of the best show titles I've ever heard. Right, you know, get evil lives here. I mean, you, on the one oh, hand, yeah. you don't want to, you know, watch a show like that. It looks kind of terrifying. On the other hand, it, it demonstrates the fact that this is a. It, it's probably a topic we've all kind of wondered about because every time something terrible happens, you know, the the neighbors come out to the TV cameras and say, "Oh, you know, he was a loner, always kind of kept to himself." And you look at the mugshot, and he looks like, uh, you know, crazy haired or or wide eyed stare or, or something like that. Ted Nugent, Sergio, nineteen seventy seven. Unbelievably, you know, uh, you know, frightening looking figure. Like, well, okay, obviously this guy looked like a serial killer. Um, yeah, is I'm there not a particular... that neighbor, by the way, just FYI, I want to jump in here. If and when any of my, you know, people I know end up being serial killers, I'm going to be the ones like I knew it. They were <laughs> always weird. They didn't talk to people. I didn't think it was normal for them to be so quiet. Things like that. There's a whole TV career out there of the witness to the forming of a serial killer in his school years. Mickey, in in watching this show, is there a discernible pattern? Do the people look at him and say, oh, yeah, I always knew this guy was a ticking time bomb? Or do they say, no, he completely had us all fooled and we all thought he was, you know, uh, employee of the month? And, you know, the key part of this show is it opens up by suggesting that, you know, it explains what crime we're going to be talking about to a certain degree you know, kind of news clips, et cetera. And then it starts leading in with the the person, the family member or whatever that's talking about the crime from their perspective. And and it says the entire premise of the show is there are signs. Like, how would, would you see the signs? Because isn't that what we always ask? Like, how could you live with a serial killer for 20 years and not know that he was burying bodies in your backyard? Right. Well, and again, it, it comes down to people saying things like, you know, well, this happened, but then I overlooked it or I tried to, we tried to get him help and, you know, this didn't happen. And it, again, it's a lot of that backstory. And I think it's really interesting because the timing on this show, I, I'm really into it. I, I'm enjoying the, like I said, the perspective that it gives me. But it's also interesting timing because Dylan Klebold's mother, now has a book out and is out talking about her experience post Columbine. I remember the uh, BTK killer, Bind, Torture, Kill, was a scout leader in a church father, and they they never found a single person in his life over twenty something years who believed that he was a serial killer during that time. He was so good, so normal. Mm-hmm. And and that's a big part of it is that you know there are signs for people who live with them and know them, but there are also you know, some of these people are terrified of the people who live in their own home. Mm. See, like you look at that and you say, OK, why did it never cross your mind to call the cops? Call, you know, like in one some of our- cases they did. And that's what makes the show so interesting mm, okay. um, is that, you know, because we we as the public, we only hear about like the, you know, whatever the mass incident was. And so we're like, what did you know, as parents. 
mm-hmm. you're you're saying, you know, how did they not know? What did they do wrong? This is clearly, you know, an epic failure on their part. And in the case of the very first episode, like I said, I've, I've watched several, but the, the school shooter one was probably one of the most interesting ones to me. Um, the mass shooter on that is that, um, and I'm sorry, it wasn't a school shooter. He was a mall shooter. Was the fact that they had done nearly everything any parent could do from sending him to psychologists to having him removed from the home to, you know, really trying to work with him. And, and it still happened. Mm. And so, you know, and you can tell that the family's devastated. And when they talked about it, the pain that they felt for the victims and the guilt is just so, you know, it's so real mm. and so wretched because we all want to believe that someone we know would never do something like this. Well, you know, because of my history, um, for those of you who are unfamiliar, you know, I, I do have a, you know, a violent <laughs> history in my past. I know people, I know someone specifically, I lived with someone who murdered someone and then killed themselves. So seeing it from the side of the family is fascinating to me. I was going to say, yeah, a, a aspect of the story that we very rarely hear uh, explored in much detail in, in tales of violent crime. And, you now, know, I'm Nikki- addicted to true crime as it is. They've got, you know, I've talked about Web of Lies before. Um, mm-hmm. Web of Lies is the show that I highly recommend, especially for parents. But I will warn you, this could cost you a computer, possibly some cords, because you're going to be just ripping things out of the wall. By the end of the first episode, you're going to be like, I'm never talking to anybody online ever again. Um, because you find out just how screwed up people are when they have that anonymity oh, yeah. behind the screen. The shield. Yes, the shield of anonymity. And the number of like crimes and things that have gone up because of the internet and the way that people are so trusting on the internet, they build relationships with people that they assume are one person and they turn out to be something entirely different. Um, is something that, you know, even as adults, I think we need to watch because we all too often assume this can only happen to kids. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I think that there's a uh, – something I've been thinking a great deal about is whether if you spend enough time online interacting through pe- with people through social media, you know, how, how does that affect your worldview? How does that affect how you see people? And, you know, you and I have, you know, in, in several ep- episodes in the past, we've talked about how nasty – life on social media can be, how, how awful the Twitter trolls can be. If you're constantly seeing people be nasty to each other, does this, does this hone your nastiness? Does this hone your hostility? Um, Mickey, I'm sure after watching me deal with people on Twitter and then come to do our show, I'm sure you'd say yes. It makes Jim a much nastier person. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Blame Twitter if you want, but okay. <laughs> I think we know better. <laughs> Don't, do you blame the powder keg or do you blame the match, really? It's, you know, <laughs> which came first, the chicken or the egg? Um, so just kind of observing the, the uh, living with evil uh, concept, Mickey, has there anyone ever done a show on people who were utterly – everyone was convinced they were serial killers, but they weren't? No, but they totally should, and they should start with me because I pick them out on the regular. 
Okay, um, there you go. You have been places with me where, you know, I and, and I'm known for creating stories like on the fly. Like I'll look at someone and create a backstory on them just for my own entertainment. <laughs> and so therefore I'm exceptionally good at picking out my own personal serial killers and the stories behind them. I have one of but those faces. Again, by the way. I just want to make it clear that if anybody I know comes up as a serial killer, I am totally on TV right now being like knew it. Okay. I am not going to be the one who's like, oh, no, he was such a quiet kid. I'm like, no, he was a freak. I thought he was a freak. He never left the house. It was weird. <laughs> Those piles of Vicky. dirt in his backyard got bigger every day. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I didn't think he was that good at gardening. Those flowers were ugly as hell. Mickey, in light of uh, it, keeping in mind all relevant slander laws and thus not naming the individual, do you think you know a serial killer right now? Do you think if you look at your circle of acquaintances, friends and neighbors and – People you know in Richmond. Yes. Okay, so, so there is ind- indisputably somewhere in your, your social network there is yes. a serial killer. Okay. Yes. What makes in you say fact, that? It, well, I, I, I can't name names, obviously, but in fact, it has been a discussion amongst some of my other friends when this particular person is not around that none of us are ever going to be willing to alibi him for anything. <laughs> okay. Um, like, we're I not ask- going to be able to alibi him because we think he might possibly be a serial killer. <laughs> I have one in my circles. Muttering to himself, what what makes you think? Oh, this this guy's definitely got you know a freezer full of body parts in his basement. <laughs> okay, well let's just say we went on this camping trip once, and we were all <laughs> there. scary music. Yeah, exactly. We're on this camping trip once. We were just kind of getting to know the guy, and um and and well, there's actually two now that I think about it. Both come from the camping trips. Weird. He brought a uh, hockey mask, which seems well, odd. nobody did bring. A hatchet and a bloody blanket. And <laughs> okay. then he tried to get Mr. Bias and, you know, my brother Melvin to touch it. He had to pull and, it pretty hard to get that blanket out of the trunk of his car initially, by the way. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so there was like, everyone like, nobody touch it. Everybody see that like he made us touch it, right? Like we all <laughs> win. Mickey, right now you're giving the ghost of Wes Craven the willies. All right, that's just kind of a... <laughs> Too creepy and weird. Like at this point, there'd be there, like an actual serial killer horror movie creator would be like, "I can't, I can't have this. The, my evil guy have the, yeah, touch the bloody blanket." No, <laughs> that do that. that's. It was just random ways he had them touch it, and it was absolutely hysterical. And again, you know, we've all discussed it since. Like, yeah, we all saw it. Like, we're good, we're, and nobody alibis them out because nobody can. You know, there are certain people. That maybe you don't want to vouch for. Because you might not, you know, know the whole story. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Our next segment is going to be on envy culture. We'll be right back. The president has a big stick. I promise. You jack wagon! It certainly is a big bun. It's a very big bun. Big fluffy bun. It's a very big fluffy bun. Where's the beef? Some hamburger places give you a lot less beef on a lot of bun. Where's the beef? At Wendy's, we serve a hamburger we modestly call the single. And Wendy's single has more beef than the Whopper or Big Mac. At Wendy's, you get more beef and less bun. Hey, where's the beef? I don't think there's anybody back there. You want something better. You're Wendy's kind of people. Welcome back to the Jim and Mickey Show. I am Jim Garrity, joined by Mickey White. And we turn our attention to envy culture. Oh, you probably deny it. In fact, none of us would ever admit to looking on Facebook and envy at our 
old friends or colleagues or people we used to know and their, how happy their lives seem right now. We would never admit to tuning into reality shows or HGTV and gazing at the granite countertops and the fancy big house with the, big, with the bay windows, big curling up driveways and fabulous window treatments. No, I don't really, I don't really care about that. But some people do, and some people uh, may actually be looking at their lives and feeling a sense of dissatisfaction and frustration. And Mickey, you said you're kind of sensing a, this, uh, this atmosphere of, of a culture of envy permeating in our uh, permeating into our pores, you could say. Are you, you uh, explain that concept to us? Well, I think that one of the things, you know, there have been many studies done that suggest that being on social media and specifically Facebook can cause people to be very depressed about their own lives and their own situations. And the reality of that is, you know, people don't post the bad days on social media. They don't have pictures of themselves curled up in a corner crying about whatever has upset them that day. Um, they put their best person forward. So it's kind of like a personal representation um, versus the actual person. However, if you're someone who's in a bad place or, you know, maybe not reaching all the goals you wanted to, a lot of times when you get on social media and you see someone who may be living a life that looks like something really, really good, then, you know, it tends to make you depressed that maybe you haven't achieved as much as you should. I also blame, as you mentioned, HGTV. I'm addicted to HGTV. I love it. Um, However, I think it's an odd thing that we've now convinced ourselves that in order for a place to be a home, it requires um, granite countertops and hardwood floors throughout. I I do marvel watching some of these programs with Mrs. Campaign Spot, and it'll be... You know, John owns a pet shop, and he's looking for something in the eight hundred thousand to nine hundred thousand dollar market. <laughs> right? Where the hell do these people get their budgets anyway? I, I feel like I'm watching the housing bubble all over again, in which there's a you yes, know. yes, we're irresponsible bank. Sure, we'll approve that mortgage. Go right ahead. Don't worry about the down payment. Don't worry about assets. You twenty two year olds deserve the best house we can give you. <laughs> yes. Yes. Exactly. And and the thing about it is, is you know, these people walk into these homes. And then are exceptionally disappointed at the reality of the homes they can afford. The appliances aren't stainless. <laughs> right, that, exactly. That the a the small. appliances aren't stainless <laughs> and this has, you know, this has granite and I really wanted marble or my favorite. This has marble, but I don't like the color. Get out. Just get, get out. out. And again, you know, it's gotten to the point where I think that there are a lot of people who believe or are starting to kind of have that mindset that homes where people live actually look like homes in better homes and gardens or coastal living. Um, and it's it, it's just very bizarre to me because it's created an envy culture of the home. I think you've hit on that, and I, I, you know, I have this sneaking suspicion that the great advantage of a social media network like Facebook is that you never lose touch with people. But, Mickey, the bad news about a social media network like Facebook mm-hmm. is that you never lose touch with people. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and, of <laughs> course, you know, one of the things I love to try to remind people all the time who get upset with things that they see on social media or get that kind of envy in their gut is envy is just not something that I personally really have a lot of. 
Um, except for, you know, kind of the fake envy of like, oh, yes, I want to own my own island. Um, but trying to explain to people that, you know, the same person who's posting pictures of their great family and, you know, their trips here and their trips there in a year from now could be posting that they're getting a divorce and are under investigation. So, you know. <laughs> Do people post that they're under investigation? That that generally doesn't, you know. I just I'm just saying like you don't really know what's happening and social media nor reality TV are a good representation. You know, there's of, a problem for a poster when he starts out a Facebook post. My lawyer tells me I shouldn't write this. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that U.S. attorney is a pain in the ticket, <laughs> you know, well, just will and not let it go. Anyway, so I think at some point there becomes an overkill, though, because at first you're like, oh, I really love seeing, you know, your vacation pictures. Like for right now, uh, a friend of our show and a friend of Jim and I is Becky Cavillian and her husband, Bob, from the Bob and Tom show are in Bora Bora. And she is sharing pictures that I am absolutely loving because I'm living vicariously through and it's gorgeous. And who gets to go to Bora Bora for this kind of extended period of time. But that's fun. When you start to see people who are like, hey, we're going on vacation again, and it's like the 14th time that year, and you're Barack like... Barack Obama, you mean? <laughs> one of the things, like, when do you work? Yeah. And one of the new things that's kind of interesting, and, you know, I'm all for adoption. I love it. I think it's fantastic. I'm slightly concerned about the Facebook moms who are now starting to, like, travel abroad to pick out babies to bring back. They're going orphan <laughs> shopping. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Designer yeah, babies. Basically, it's like, it's like having a kid from Africa is now an accessory. Wow. Uh, I guess, I guess Brangelina really are the trendsetters that everybody. Yeah, they were. Like, and, and you know, it's just, again, another level of, yeah. Well, oh, let's go ahead and imitate those Joneses, regardless how ridiculous the Joneses get. Maybe what it is, is that, you know, in the pre social media, pre internet era, that if you heard about an old high school classmate, somebody from your hometown, college classmate, somebody doing really well. Oh, did you hear they made senior partner and they just built this, you know, they just bought this big house in, you know, the such and such fancy neighborhood and all that. Like, like it was, it was word of mouth. It was slow and you didn't get a lot of pictures with it. Right. Mm -hmm. And now with Facebook, you get to see not only, you know, like just how great their life is, their representation of just how great their life is. Right. And, and so it's, everything is kind of like, you know, tuned up to 11, the sense of like, and, and you look at that person and you remember them. I, are there, okay, actually, I will talk a little bit out of school here. You ready for everyone, you know, hit record. Uh, <laughs> my distinguished colleague, Ramesh Panuru, went to college with Senator Ted Cruz. He speaks very well of him. He thinks very highly of him. I've always gotten the impression, though, that Ramesh can't quite believe that this guy he knows from college... <laughs> Could conceivably be the president of the United States someday. <laughs> right? It's bad enough when you have to call your old friend Senator when you see him. But imagine <laughs> at some point calling him Mr. President, right? So the idea hey. of somebody who was once your peer, somebody who was once at your – and Ramesh is an exceptionally successful, brilliant, one of the brightest guys I know. Yes, he is. Every time I say that, he says I should get to know more people. But <laughs> you know, the gist being that if somebody who you thought of as being your equal goes on to achieve stratospheric success – Mm-hmm. that even if you are a successful and accomplished person, isn't there some part that's like, well, wait a minute. What, why him and why not me? What, what, did I make the right choices in my life? Maybe some of this is natural and probably it's not an entirely uh, 
uh, healthy way of thinking to be comparing yourself to the the pinnacle of, of success in life. Somebody's got to do those things, those high-profile jobs. I would think it's a compliment for somebody like Ramesh to have been in the company of Ted Cruz and thus one of the worthies. And, of course, there aren't 37 presidents of the United States, so you can't put everyone in that class in the office of president. There are probably some people who'd say that Ted Cruz was really honored to be in the presence of Ramesh the other way around. (laughs) (laughs) Are those people named Panuru by any chance? No, I don't know. So, you know, but just making the observation that on the one hand, you want to take joy in your peers' accomplishments and pat them on the back and say, uh, good for you. And I, I, you know, I don't want to project anything onto Ramesh's assessment of Ted Cruz. Um, but just kind of making the assessment, like if, when you see somebody who was once your equal doing yeah. something amazing, um, maybe it's, it's, it's impossible to not think of these. It's like, well, if they could do that, maybe I could too. Or if they did it, boy, what? What did they do right that I didn't? What um, weakness well, of mine I, was I, just I, revealed? I'm, I, I, you know, I believe that I've been through several um, life crises, like not midlife crises, but quarter life crises. Like, <laughs> what do I want to be when I grow up? All that. And so Facebook for me is always entertaining because I'm fascinated by people who actually like, oh, this is, you know, this is totally what I want to do 100% no matter what and go with it. And then, you know, they have, you know, some have success, some do not, some end up doing something completely different. I find myself being the like, yeah, I just, I don't know, I'm not sure I've quite figured it out yet, but I'm having a really good time while I try all these different things. Good. And they should, ideally, every time you encounter somebody and you see them happy, you should be able to be happy for them too. Um, yes. It, I don't understand. I guess that's part of what I don't get. Like, I don't understand the idea that you both can't be happy or that you can't be happy for someone else's success. Well, I think, look, undoubtedly, when it comes to looking at our lives, there are two conclusions we can make. Anything that disappoints us is a reflection of our own faults, our own bad decisions. Uh, All the times we didn't work hard enough, didn't try hard enough, didn't make, you know, apply ourselves and, and, you know, learn lessons from that. Or we conclude it was somebody else's fault. <laughs> the boss was biased against me. Blame the, them. Uh, uh, mom and dad professor hated me. Everybody always, you know. And lo and behold, the, the scenario in which it's not our own fault always seems more appealing. <laughs> it's always easier to say, ah, those, you know, either, if not those grapes were sour anyway, well, the other fox had a ladder and that's why it was, he was able to get those grapes and I, and I couldn't. <laughs> this fractured fairy tale segment. But, you know, again, you always have to remember with all of these situations, there are trade-offs. So whatever you see, whether it be on social media or on reality TV, it may look wonderful, but it could just be an image. Something to keep in mind. Carefully um, <laughs> Photos yes, carefully cropped. Exactly. Yes. I mean, you know. it's exactly. It's a very heavily edited presentation of what they want you to see about their lives. And again, that applies to social media, reality TV, HGTV, who makes me so angry. Like, swear to God, when people go overseas to try to buy property, I understand why people hate Americans. Oh God, I, it takes about two episodes of uh, House Hunters International, in which extraordinarily yeah. spoiled Americans go to European apartments and complain that they're too small and have ludicrous expectations. Mickey, at about two episodes, I'm ready to join ISIS. Okay? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, like, see no, I get it. I'm like, 
Oh, this is why they hate us. I hate us, too. Yeah, I don't like that stuff either. The guy who I pay to play me on Facebook is very offended. And that's another thing, too. You talk about people who play to Facebook is that understand, too, guys, that there are so many people out there that have media companies running their accounts for them. That it's really important to know you may be talking to the real person or you could be talking to, you know, a staffer or an assistant. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think that's something important to keep in mind. And uh, so, you know, as we've kind of wrecked through why you shouldn't be envious of people, because let's face it, at some point, everybody's life gets screwed up. We're going to talk about one of the most screwed up families on TV and how heartbreaking this season is going to be Downton Abbey coming up next when it comes to the music of the 90s anything goes living in the 90s two and a half hours of the coolest songs on two CDs and two cassettes check it out one thin September soon a floating continent disappears in midnight sun Downton Abbey is coming to an end And, you know, as you mentioned a little bit in the last segment, envy culture kind of comes into it in the sense that we like to watch and see that golden era, um, the gilded era of the house and the manor and the servants and the lords and the ladies. And apparently the drama and the death and the destruction that they feel the need to force upon us every single season. So I'm really hoping for a happy ending on this. Um, what I have found to be one of the most endearing things about this particular show, when people ask me like why people get obsessed with it, it's because you're so invested in the characters. The major characters, the minor characters, the good characters, the bad characters... Um, the way they stick together. And I think the attitude and fortitude of that generation, um, which is known as the silent generation, um, is is unbelievable when you compare it to what we're dealing with today. I was going to say, I have not been a, uh, but anything resembling a, a diehard fan of the show or constant viewer of the show. But when I, when I do catch it on, uh, it's on Sunday nights, it usually airs, right? Right, Mickey? Yes, Sunday nights um, on PB. It, it seems like the distilled antithesis to the excesses of our culture today, meaning that today's culture is the I'm a be me culture, probably the most yeah. repugnant phrase in the English language. <laughs> I'm a that, be me. I'm a, I'm a be and that's, that's really defining it generously as English. Um, but the I just, like you do you. Yeah. The just being that, yes, I'm going to do what I believe is right for me. I'm going to trust my own instincts. I'm going to – I don't care whether it offends you. I don't care whether it bothers you. I don't care how much my behavior uh, affects you. I'm going to continue doing that because I have to be true to myself. But you look at the culture of the era of Downton Abbey was – like the, the highest priority was to avoid giving offense. Let's <laughs> perpetually oh show respect to everyone around each other. They didn't want their pictures taken. Mm-hmm. They they didn't want, you know, the, the worst possible thing for that family would be to have scandal mm-hmm. or gossip about them. Can you imagine? 
it, it's a they didn't like having their pictures taken. They had that different alone. different priorities, different values, what they considered preeminent and important, right? Like to them it was much more important to be thought well of than to be thought of. Perhaps right? if you yeah. already have millions of pounds in the bank, fame is a somewhat less highly regarded component of your future. Mm. Well, a great deal of it had to do with the way that the monarchy was set up and and obviously the aristocracy I, I, I can't say that word apparently aristocracy aristocracy um is set up because they are taught that it's their job you know it's very much about the feudal system and that, you know it's their job to oversee the land etc in this time period and you see over the course of the now we're into the 13th quote unquote year of watching this family grow and change and go through war and, you know, everything that legitimately happened. Obviously, it's a fictionalized story, but it's fictionalized history. And you can and you can feel and sense and it feels like it puts you right in that moment. And, like, I'm already in mourning, if I'm being completely frank. Because I know this is the last season. I'm already planning on going back and starting over at the beginning. Um, there's a certain amount of formality there's a certain amount of respect. Do I think that the way that they did everything was right? No. But now we are, as you, you know, the word you used was antithesis of that, in that we are so casual. We are so ready to put our picture out everywhere. We don't, you know, and any publicity is good publicity, right? Oh, you know, look. look. Um, if I wanted to summarize the, the, you know, the, the epitome of, of everything we're describing wrong here, um, everything that seems to have gone wrong in our culture, uh, Mickey, I assume you have encountered that, that medium column from a Yelp employee who uh, yeah. believes that, <laughs> that, that, she's ne- that she's going through the hardest time any 20-something ever has, <laughs> that her CEO is so cruel and so terrible and that her – her uh, job at this that this uh, urban uh, tech startup is just ridiculous and it's so unfair. And of course, after writing this really lengthy diatribe against her own company, shockingly enough, she got a, she got dismissed. Um, and, and of course, that's not fair even more. Um, and so this is less fantastic. fair, less fair. Um, so Stephanie Williams is a uh, slightly older millennial. I believe she's thirty, and she writes this open letter to millennials like Talia. Uh, and I, I, it's a, we will have to put this up on the Facebook page. It's just a brilliant lengthy description of, Hey, I'm 30. Let me tell you what my twenties were like. <laughs> and the, the opening right. to summarize it very well, you know, I felt an imperative to address your concerns and above all your obvious need for financial assistance. <laughs> it sounds like you've hit some real post Haitian earthquake style hard times. <laughs> so maybe some <laughs> advice will help you while you drink the incredibly expensive bourbon you posted on your Instagram account <laughs> and eat that bag of rice, which was the only other thing you could afford. <laughs> um, and, and it goes downhill from there. Um, and so it just kind of seemed like at a time where um, the, the family of Downton Abbey, like the whole point, you, you dare not complain in public you dare not uh show weakness or curse the heavens or or play the victim or anything like that you know, stiff up our lip right and now we have people who are writing open letters we don't you know we don't speak of this in front of anyone really like everything was very private mm-hmm. now ah, we've gone from now we've gone from stiff upper lip to trout pout selfies <laughs> <laughs> 
I was thinking sniff up or lick to um, duck lips, but. That's what duck lips are, is the trout pout. That was the previous generation's name for them. And speaking of millennials, I'm sure there are people who've gotten messages from Anthony Weiner wishing it was just a stiff upper lip and not <laughs> stiff lower lip. Yeah. <laughs> um, so <laughs> again, like a, a, I don't know if this this poor millennial who's formerly from Yelp is going to take the right lesson from this. Um, I happen to notice that the the rebuking message has gotten 3.2 thousand likes, uh, so 3,200. Uh, only 2,700 likes for the, um, the, the millennial life is so hard. Uh, you will get that up on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Jim and Mickey show. And, uh, and I do encourage you to swing by and check it out, uh, become a fan and read this article because it is, well, it's kind of like the sorority girl email of this year. Uh, yeah. And, and it's fascinating. We see a, um. We see it's kind of that great intersection between what we're seeing happen in the presidential race, the political arena, and just life as it is lived. And it's kind of nice to hear this this thirty year old former waitress describing, like, look, everyone has time. I'm going to guess. I'm going to predict in their twenties. Maybe there are some people who step out of college into the workforce, into their dream job, and and life is great for them. And if you are, I hate you. No, um, <laughs> yeah. But most—that's not the experience for most people. Most people have really crap jobs at the beginning of their careers. Mo- yeah. Dave, I'm going to go out on a crazy limb and assume that your first job in radio was not on air and was not picking the guests and was not picking—you know—was not, not doing exactly what you wanted. Correct? Actually, in TV, my first job was late night weekends, putting light bulbs into spotlights on the ceiling and great personal danger to myself and no medical insurance for a part-time worker. But my first job in radio actually was on the air for minimum wage, which at the time was $2.90 an hour, and I slept on a friend's couch because I couldn't afford to live. There you go. <laughs> Mickey, I'm, I'm thinking of your, I know your, your long and storied career history. I know you've spent a lot of time in media world. But what, what was your first job in media? Because I'm guessing it was not a glamorous one. My first job was, uh, was a daytime-only radio station, which in the summer meant 17 hours of broadcasting, and we split it between two guys. So I had an eight-and-a-half-hour shift on a station in a tiny town that maybe had 10 or 20 listeners on a good day for a minimum wage, eight-and-a-half-hour shift. Couldn't go away, could hardly get down the hall to the bathroom and ate peanut butter and crackers. And this was for a year. I still blame the people who gave me that job for ruining my life. <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling. I actually know that feeling a great deal. I, you know, I, I had uh, several kind of odd, weird marketing style jobs after college because, you know, as you guys know, I was poli sci and marketing major and I didn't want to get into poli sci. Um, so I, I am one of the rare people who have actually kind of ended up using um, what they learned in college in the sense that um, it wasn't my very first job, but it was my first job in media was immediately into um, account executive and sales and advertising. So it was already on the business side. So while um, I was able to say like, oh, I work in, you know, for a radio station or I work in media, it sounded super, super glamorous um, to a lot of people. But as any new AE would tell you, that means that you work 24-7, you have all the late paid clients, and you're the one who has to be at the club at 2 a.m. to collect cash. 
<laughs> That's true. I got to add, by the way, that <laughs> I've been at many of those clubs with my AE, and none of us were sober when we walked out at 2 a.m. I uh, have to add that I was playing golf on my on my on my college team and broke my ankle and had to find a job for during the time when my ankle was healing. I fully intended to become a pro golfer and got into radio as a way of killing the time. So, Jim, how about you? Paperboy, what first got your career going? Oh, God. Uh, so there's a ludicrously overrated comedy troupe in the Washington, D.C. area called the Capitol Steps. Um, and they, they do their songs, singing wacky, funny songs about, you know, the president and leaders in Congress and stuff like that. I'm familiar with My first with job that. out of college was to be their public relations uh, hack. <laughs> they're first to promote them and from that what well, you may have noticed if you see the jim and mickey show promoted it's being done by the mickey half mickey does this very well mickey likes it i hate public relations in part because i realized i would do all the work other reporters would take my stuff and put it under their byline capital steps would get promoted and i would get like twenty two thousand dollars a year and now ladies and gentlemen you know from the curb from the dread Hungry Peanut Butter and Crackers, beginning of media, how Jim and Mickey and myself ended up here on the Jim and Mickey show, the pinnacle of media. Nobody yeah, nobody starts at the top. Nobody even starts from the middle. You work from the bottom and you just suck it up and, you, you know, it's a way of weeding out people who don't want it bad enough. Ain't that right? Oh, absolutely. And, and it becomes one of those things where, you know, you just have to learn and realize that. You're never going to just walk into the CEO position. Well, I hope all of our younger listeners have uh, appreciated the valuable life lessons in this segment. We'd also ask them to please get off our lawn. I could have used a little more cowbell. The time has come for someone to put his foot down. And that foot is me. Player. Player. See, in this world, there's two kinds of people, my friend. Those with loaded guns, those who dig. You make me want to be a better man. I wish I knew how to quit you. Balls of Fury. Welcome back to the Jim and Mickey Show. I am Jim Garrity, joined by Mickey White. And Mickey, it's that magical time of year that's coming along. It's not, no, not March Madness. CPAC Madness, otherwise known as the plague. Um, the Conservative Political <laughs> Action Conference will be getting together in National Harbor. Uh, just across the river from Alexandria, Virginia, in the Washington, D.C. area. I know your tickets are booked. Um, how, how psyched are you for what is certainly going to be a great disappointment compared to last year? <laughs> um, well, considering, obviously, last year was my first trip ever to CPAC, and you being, you know, the fact that I kind of was hanging out with you, it made it like the best CPAC ever, considering you won Conservative Journalist of the Year. It's going to be really hard to top that. However, um, I do have my press passes, as you mentioned. I've got my room booked. I'm going to be there all week. And we're going to be doing um, even maybe some live TJM's broadcasts from there. One of the things I look forward to is not getting sick this year because I got the crud early. Um, one of the other things I look forward to is just seeing all the people that you maybe only get to see once a year at this event. And, you know, as much as you drug me to last year's event this year... I was like, no, no, I'm going to go because it's really worthwhile to – it's a great time. You have a good opportunity to meet all different kinds of people and some really fantastic speakers, not just on the political side. 
you do. Um, by the way, that's considered that a, a, a warning to all CPAC attendees. If you get sick this year, it's because Mickey was the carrier, not, not the one who was actually sick. <laughs> she vector. is patient zero. Uh, <laughs> I am not patient zero. I'm going to be over it. What did you call her? Asian time. zero? <laughs> but I look forward to seeing a lot of our friends and listeners. Um, if you are going to be at CPAC, do look for Jim and I. Um, we're going to be out and about um, on the town and throughout the day. So come out, say hi to us. Um, Jim is, you know, not nearly as evil as he seems. Ha! Um, so let me just observe that in addition to whatever events you and I put together for CPAC, either a live taping or some sort of get-together, uh, certainly we'll be, be mingling and doing happy hours and various other gatherings. Um, I am told that National Review is going to have me at the booth for a certain period of time. Which Mickey just seems to be, I, I, you know, I, I'm a team player. I'll do whatever my employer wants me to do. But it just, I, I'm just interpreting that as yell at Jim. <laughs> yeah, and C-pack. I plan. Just so you know, I plan while you're playing bitch or booth bitch. I plan <laughs> on being there with my phone, videotaping anyone who does come up and just start yelling at you. I, I was going to say, I'm going to be periscoping. All over. <laughs> I was going to say it is a it, you know it is a big gathering. It's always kind of crowded. It's always got a little bit of a zoo. Usually there's something like Uncle Sam on stilts, tea party, tri corner hat guy. A couple <laughs> years ago. last year we had superheroes. The year before that we had Imperial stormtroopers. You do know that uh, National Review has booked a dunk tank, don't you? There, yeah, well, they, well, we, we could probably make a profit if we did that. Um, <laughs> we'd become an intentional. We would no longer be an intentional nonprofit. Yes, the accidental nonprofit. There would be people lined up for days. <laughs> um, it, it should be fun. It should be an interesting gathering. Obviously, with the primaries. I have a feeling tensions and <laughs> tensions will be high and tempers will flare, and yeah. you will see the Cruz and Rubio folks breaking down like the sharks and the jets at the <laughs> West Side Story, uh, snapping fingers and, and uh, drawing knives on each other. Um, but hey, you know, that's the magic of CPAC and it only happens once a year. And I will have my phone charged all the time. Oh yeah. I've seen people kill each other over electrical sockets. (laughs) Indeed. I understand that is something that we should all be afraid of at CPAC because people do in fact get cut over both chargers, sockets, (laughs) etc. Um, and I want to thank everybody because we have once again come to the end of another show. This hour goes by so quickly. Um, We do look forward to seeing you here again next week. Uh, You can always find us on SoundCloud.com forward slash Jim and Mickey show. You can find us on iTunes or Spreakers. Um, You can also find us on the 405 Media and you can find us on Altcon Radio. There are several other outlets where you can find the Jim and Mickey show, but please do look for their hashtag TJAMS, TJAMS. I'm Mickey White. He's Jim Garrity. And you've been listening to The Jim and Mickey Show. We'll see you next week. I can get you sleep. I think about the implications of diving into deep. Possibly the complications, especially at night. I worry over situations. I know we'll be alright. Perhaps it's just an imagination.
only brings exasperation It's time to walk the streets Smell the desperation At least there's pretty lights <laughs> 